Hello and welcome to the Healthy Entrepreneur Club podcast. A healthy entrepreneur is someone who achieves business success whilst prioritising their physical and mental well-being. In other words, they understand the healthy hustle. They possess the ability to effectively manage their business operations, make strategic decisions and nurture their personal health and brand for sustainable growth and long-term success. Our guest today is Sahil Mehta. He's an entrepreneur, mountaineer, and author. Well, Sahil, thank you so much for joining me on the Healthy Entrepreneur Club podcast. It's great to see you. Great, great to see you again, Freddie. Awesome. The first time we met was actually on TV. At the <laughs> place, right? What a bizarre start to <laughs> I'd love to jump in first. We've just heard about your bio and the, the numerous things that you've done in your life, but I'd love to jump back to the start and where you came through on your entrepreneurial journey. What made you make, understand and want to jump into entrepreneurship? You know, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family, and since, here's the funny thing, actually my dad was an employee, but the way that he was, he positioned himself in the company and the, and the way the company shared responsibilities, everyone on the outside thought he was actually a business partner, and he would always invite me to the office, he would always invite customers to the house for dinners, so I was always engaging with the business side of things. You know, that was my, I guess, now that I look back at it, that was my father's way of educating me on how to do businesses from a very early age. Why do you think he did that? Was that because there was, you know, he liked the social side of it? Or do you think he wanted to be an entrepreneur in his, in his life? Did he become an entrepreneur? You know, he eventually did. When the, when the company said that you've now reached the retirement age, yeah. he said, uh, nah, uh, nah, <laughs> that, that's not for me. In fact, retirement wasn't even in his dictionary. So that's when he actually started his entrepreneurial journey at the age of 50. Four, I think it was. Really? Yeah. It's a lifelong, lifelong learning. Yeah. That's quite inspirational. Yeah. And that obviously had an impact on your life, right? So you'd obviously learn from what he was doing as an employee. He was going above and beyond to show that entrepreneurial trait. And then he took that leap. So how did that impact you when you started to take that, that first journey? Did you have a job or did you go straight into entrepreneurship? No, actually, when I finished university, uh, you know, when I graduated, I, I had a master's in electronic and electrical engineering. Mm-hmm. And this was just after the dot-com crash of 2000. Right? I graduated in 2001, and I, I didn't know this at the time, but uh, I had a lot of friends who were going into non-engineering roles, and it turns out that companies like investment banks, they love engineers, mm-hmm. uh, and, and they pay very well. So I was like, okay, this is a you know, good experience, something that I can start with, and so I, I was working in, in London for Credit Suisse First Boston as an investment banker, and that was my first job at a university. Wow. Yeah. How did you get on with that? How long did you last, I should ask? Yeah, so, uh, well, I lasted a year. Okay. Uh, numerous reasons. One, when I joined, it was 2001, right? And we had 9-11. Mm. And so uh, the company went through two firing rounds. Now, I was very fortunate in the first one. I didn't get fired because they eliminated the weaker individuals, mm. and I wasn't one of them. But in the second round, even though I didn't get fired, I noticed that it wasn't based on how good you were. You could just be in the wrong seat at the wrong time. And that brought a lot of uncertainty to me. So I was already on the fence that is this my future? Like they don't value me. I just could be at the wrong desk and off you go. And at the same time, that's when my dad was starting his new company. So that kind of pushed me over the fence and said, you know, as a son, I should go quit this job, go back and support him to start his company. So that's really interesting, actually, because that's almost the opposite way around that most people find it. You found instability in employment, and actually you backed yourself and your father to be able to create certainty in that business, right? So can you talk a little bit about that business? Yeah, you know, the, the diamond business, which is the business that my father has been involved in since, I think it's the age of 17 or something. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very unique business. It's a very, I would say... Um, close-knit business you know everyone knows everyone it's very rare that you work with someone that you don't know unless if you're buying from them so if you're buying from someone in general it might be okay but otherwise you're selling on credit you're selling on trust you're selling on reputation and that only happens when you've known someone or have a reference on that person through someone else that you trust and so you know i'll give you an example People would do transactions worth millions of dollars on a handshake. There'd be no emails, 
no contracts, nothing. It's just your word and my word. Mm. Now, unfortunately, not everyone is honest. And so with a few incidents that have occurred over the last few decades, especially now insurance companies are saying, well, how do I know that Freddie took these goods on consignment? Where, do you have any proof? <laughs> and so we've had to start to introduce some paperwork. But yeah, it's um, like, I guess, many other businesses. It has its own unique ways of, of getting things done. Yeah. And that's almost inherent of a diamond, right? Like a diamond only has value because we put value on it. It's actually just a, you know something that's naturally occurring and has no value to anyone else outside humanity, right? That's an interesting sort of segue towards the the, the journey you've had in your businesses. So you've got the diamond business, mm -hmm. but more latterly, I mean, we're sat here next to your your book. You've taken a lot of what you've learned and you've brought it forward right into yeah. your sort of current business, right? You know, not just my current business, my my life. And I feel when you're an entrepreneur, there's this very gray area between work and your personal life. And I would say that's probably the case for everyone, because if you're very unhappy at work, the chances are you're going to be unhappy in your personal life as well. It is going to come with you and vice versa. If you're very unhappy in your personal life, it's going to come with you to the office as well. So it's very important to get the you right. Because I'll tell you, I, there's many things I've been doing. Once I changed my lens and how I perceive things and how I address things, certain scenarios that used to perhaps cause me a lot of grief either don't affect me anymore, or now that I see it differently, I'm actually enjoying them. Yeah. Do you, so do you think that, you know, as part of um, the, the journey and what you've learned through your job, university, and your business, do you think that what you've come across is that you've, are inherently someone who likes to be almost a perfectionist. You like everything to be done. You're creative, but a perfectionist. And you're battling that mindset to be a more fluid or, or free person. And that's then what you've discovered. Other people have levitated towards you because they can see that you've been on that journey. And now you're able to say and write about the benefits and the impact that it's had on your life. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. And I want to elaborate on your, what you just said. What is perfection? <laughs> you know, your definition and my definition could be so different. Mm -hmm. So when I'm pushing and thriving for perfection and putting in those countless extra hours, which is going to take me from, let's say, in what in my mind is 90% to 100%, you might actually think uh, it's not that important or you may not even like it. Mm -hmm. uh, so what is perfection? And, and you know, when I, I, I love that word for that very reason. Because I'm always pushing people and saying when I'm coaching them that, okay, you want to be the, you want to meet the perfect spouse. You want to have the perfect job. You want to have the perfect looks. But what is perfect? Have you even defined it? You know, you, someone might look at Jennifer Lopez and say, oh, she's perfect. You know, someone might look at Hugh Jackman. But other people might say, no, actually, that's not my type. I, I prefer, you know, so-and-so. So what is perfect? Well, that's a very good question. It's quite an, a poignant question, really. It's incredibly subjective and it's different from person to person, I think you're completely right. And when you set goals, you need to understand what your success criteria is, you know? Yes. This is so, it's so true, right? Because some people will say, actually, do you know what? There was a, um, a study done recently where they asked people, how, m how many times your salary currently do you need, or your, whatever you make per year, do you need to be happy, quote unquote? And someone who was on $30,000 a year said, I need 90. Someone on $300,000 a year said, I need 900. Someone on 30 million said I need 90 million. It's always three times. But really, what you're talking about, and you know, I've read your book, and I think it comes across quite clearly, at least to me, you need to understand where your end goal is. Not necessarily that you're going to achieve it, tick it off, and then you can sit on a beach somewhere, but what are you working towards, and what's that bigger impact? Which is something that I think is going to come through in this conversation very clearly. Yeah, and let me add to that, Freddie. Goal. As a mountaineer, I, I always tell people, and especially the, the, the folks that I'm coaching, I say, what is your definition of success? What are the mountains you wish to climb? Because a lot of people say, ooh, I want to be rich. And I go, great, that's wonderful. But what does that mean? Is it rich in wealth? Is it rich in health? Is it rich in relationships, in personal growth, in spirituality, and so on and so on? And it, it could be so many different things. So it's very important to identify your summits, which define your version of success. It's not what I think success is. 
because I'm 100% sure it's going to be different from your definition than everyone else's out there. Because ultimately, I need to feel successful. I don't need validation from someone else. And so once those mountains and those summits have been identified, then it's a matter of, okay, where am I now? And what are the steps I need to take in order to get up? And here's the thing. Once you do that, it becomes so much easier to say yes or no when you're at that inflection point, or not the inflection, that decision-making point, whether you should do something or not do it. You ask yourself, is it in line with any of my summits? Yes, let's go. If not, why am I wasting my time on this? Yeah. And, and what I love about it is that was what I was going to move on to, and you mentioned mountaineering there. And I want to go back. If anyone has read anything about Sahil or, or knows Sahil, it will be that you've you climbed a lot of mountains, the actual physical mountains, never mind the metaphor. So I want to go back to, we've gone through your sort of early stage life and, and business. Yeah. I want to go back to your first, I think it was your first marathon, the London Marathon, and then your journey to climb six of the tallest mountains since 2010. But yeah. I want to start with that marathon, because what I've read and spoken to you about is that that was the thing that you went, actually, I should push myself all the time physically. And I don't know if I read, if I read it from your book, the Japanese philosophy of Masoji which is do something impactful yeah. once a year that impacts you, you know, reading your book and listening to what you spoke about before. It's exactly what you've done. Yeah. But I'd love to hear how you went from you know, marathon. Why did you do marathon? Because you didn't do that before. And then why the mountains? The, the marathon is actually quite a funny story. As an investment banker, you sit a lot on your desk. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I've, I, that doesn't give you much time to take care of your fitness and... and, and your well-being, let's just say that. You know, I, I mean, just to give an example, there were many days when I'm having breakfast, lunch, and dinner on my desk. Okay? Suddenly, my clothes start getting tight. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is not good because I'm going to have to replace my entire closet. And so one of the managing directors, I heard he was running a, a marathon, he was, you know, who sits just behind me. And I said, Rab, you know, how, do you, how do you get in? Because... There's so many people that apply for the London Marathon. It's like, unless if you're a super runner, it's a lottery system. And I had tried, um, but I, I, it didn't, I didn't succeed. Um, and, and the reason why I chose the marathon was because I said I need to do something extreme that's going to push me so that I can continue to wear the clothes that I'm wearing. And it'll just feel kind of great, right? You, I think it's one of those bucket list things. Uh, run a marathon. Yeah, exactly. So I asked this, this, this managing de director, Rab, and uh, I said, he said, well, you know, we've signed up with this charity, and as long as you can raise a certain amount of money, they will give you one of their tickets. Mm. And I said, great. And what was nice was because he was running it as well, uh, as well as one other member of the team, it was a nice way to kind of push each other. Because when you're solo, you know, you might wake up and go, ah, I'm feeling tired today, or it's cold outside, or it's raining, but then you get that message. Where are we meeting? Yeah. You know, how many kilometers are we running this weekend? Um, so that just pushed me. Um, there's accountability, right? There's accountability. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and what I loved about the London Marathon was, because when you set yourself on this, these kind of big tasks, whether it's physical or, or metaphorical, you know, at some point, the body kind of gives in. And then the mind says, no, you can do it. You can do it. And at some point, even the mind can't fight for you anymore. And like that, there's like a bigger why that pushes you. And I have to say, I was at, at the point of thinking, is this even for me? Because at some point I was, ah, like my legs, my, it just, it was, I was hurting, really hurting. And the crowd, okay. the crowd, unbelievable. The supporters, they don't know who you are. They're standing there for hours. They're handing out orange slices, frutella, um, you know, water. They just, they're, they're so giving. They're setting up bands that are playing music to entertain you. And they always tell you, write your name on your shirt. So out of the back, I hear someone saying, go, Silk, you're almost there. You can do it. I have no idea who this person is. But it just takes those few words when you're at your breaking point to say, I can push that a little bit more. And I have to say, if it weren't for the crowd, I, I don't know if I would have crossed that line. It's the power of community, isn't it? My brother-in-law and my, my father both run the London Marathon. And they both said, when you're starting off, you know, you've got your training up to maybe 15 miles, that's yeah, okay. Yeah. Then you've got, you know, the different sites you go past at the London Bridge or whatever it is. 
and you, that's okay. Get to sort of the early 20s and nothing can save you apart <laughs> from the crowd because they're constantly, it's constant, isn't it? Yeah. In the marathon. I've been able yeah. to see lots of people do it and you really struggle to find them because they're, you know, 10 deep most of the way along the whole 26.2 mile route. Yeah. You can't get to the front to see someone, but everyone there will cheer you on and that power of community and, you know, you must have realized that connection between sitting at your desk thinking, my clothes are not fitting, my health and well-being are taking a bit of a knock here, but I'm doing well in my job. Let me do something which is going to be hold me accountable, it's going to make me fitter, but also it gives you that sense of community. So is that why you then went, I'm going to do a mountain? Is that the link there? You know, it, I don't know if that triggered it. I'm sure there was some element there of, hey, I can actually do this. Because many times we limit ourselves. I don't need anyone else to tell me I can't do it. I've already told myself I can't do it, right? And and so it's kind of one of those childhood dreams. You know, there's some friends who I grew up with and we all spoke about, and look, Everest has this lure to it. You know, it's, it's the tallest mountain and all that stuff. And although we weren't going to go to the top, it's a big commitment of time, energy, money, all sorts of things. We said, you know what, let's get to the base. And the base, by the way, is still five and a half. I mean, we went a little higher than the base, Kalapata. That's still five and a half thousand meters above sea level. So it's no joke. But um, I said, I got to do this. And we hadn't had children at that time. So it's a little bit easier because uh, your responsibilities are fewer. And I told the missus, I said, listen, I really want to do this. And uh, one of my closest friends said, yeah, I'll join you. I said, I'd love to do it with you. And it's you know, it's not her thing. It wasn't really my thing either. It was the first mountain. And uh, we both said, yeah, let's do it. So your first mountain was slightly higher than Everest Base Camp. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> How long did that take to train for? Uh, well, you know, I, living in Dubai where it's fairly flat, um, once we decided we, we trained, we were already training, but you need to train for specific muscle groups that are going to help you on the incline, decline, carrying a, a bag on your back, right? So we started training, and I think it was a good six months that was very specific to mountain climbing. And although we don't have high altitude here, we did use uh, certain buildings and going up the emergency stairwell, you know, getting their permission, and then with our backpacks and our boots on, we would go up and down the stairs. And that was that helped us with the vertical ascent, yeah. you know, because you have to train for that. You can't just do it on flat ground. No, of course. That's incredible. And then so then that was when you got the bug. You know, you must, you've summited and thought, this is amazing. I need to do this again. You did it another, multiple more times, right? Yeah, I don't know what it is. There's, the, you know, they refer to this as the mountain bug. That once you get it, you just want to keep going back. Mm. But what happened was, after that, we decided to have children. And so, you know, one child came. We were very blessed with a baby boy. And then 23 months later, we had a baby girl. And we didn't, because we wanted to enjoy that experience together, we didn't want to leave the children when they really need us. And so we waited until they got to a certain age before they, you know, we felt comfortable to leave them with the grandparents, for example, and, and both go off on another mountain. So 2010 was where we went a little higher than base camp on Everest. The next mountain was not till seven years later in 2017. And that only came about because I realized that I kept making up reasons for doing any of these big things. Oh, there's, there's work, there's this, there's that. There's always a reason, right? If you want to find a reason, there's always a reason. But when I started this whole break-free movement, which I didn't call it that initially, but you know, it was my own internal journey, I realized, and I think there's a quote along these lines, the best time to plant a tree was two weeks ago or, or two years ago or something like that, and the next best time is now. And so I said, Hey, I keep talking about the mountain and I've constantly made excuses not to go. I'm going to pay and sign up because once you pay, you've committed. <laughs> so that's how we started our, our, our mountain uh, climbing again. And 2017 was uh, Kilimanjaro. Wow. Okay. That's definitely yeah. my bucket list. So what I want to get into here is what is your appetite for risk? Because, you know, these are not easy feats, which is what probably lures you into them. Right? There's a benefit of health and well-being, but... There must be more than that. So there is a risk factor there. They're obviously they're fairly expensive. There's a risk factor. You've got to be accountable to your training. So my question is, what is your appetite for risk in both in, in your life in general, Emma, I guess? Well, risk again is such a 
it's so subjective. And I mean, even <laughs> one of the mountains we climb, you know, uh, my wife and I have done all the mountains, pretty much all the mountains together. And there was one in Peru, Tropicalqui, which is the highest and toughest mountain we've done because it was also more technical. So it's a 6,354 meter peak. And, you know, sometimes you see in the movies, you got the two ice axes and you're going up the walls, you know. Style. Yeah. So uh, the walls went at 90 degrees, but like between 60 and 70 degrees. So still very steep, right? And after that, my wife said, you know, maybe we shouldn't be doing these together. <laughs> right? It was that coupled with crevasses. We had to go over crevasses. But again, they were not that wide. So in my mind, it was very low risk. But in my wife's mind, even though you could easily step over or jump over it, you know, when she looks down, she goes, uh-uh. <laughs> um, so for me, to answer your question, whenever I look at risk, I look at, which is the team that is coming up with me? How proficient are they? You know, how good is the equipment that we're using? What is the time of year that we're going in? And what are the weather conditions most likely to be? We can't predict it fully, but, you know, we have some vague idea. Um, who are the people that are coming up with me? You know, when you're climbing a wall and, and someone hasn't trained properly and all that, someone's mishap could cause a big problem for a lot of people. So there's so many factors that come into play. And all of those are checked. So when people think, oh, I'm just climbing a mountain and hey, who wants to come? Let's go. No, there's a lot that goes into it. A lot of meticulous planning and reassuring ourselves that is this the right team of climbers, guides, you know, the equipment. And so we go through this whole process and that planning helps to, in my mind, reduce the risk. There will always be risk. There's risk of driving a car here on Shakeside Road. There's a risk of flying an airplane. But we all look at the data and we go, okay, how many people might have died or in this airline or car or whatever? And we take a, a call accordingly. Um, and I guess that's how I've, I've, I've approached it as well. And what about in your businesses? Are you someone that likes to you know, stay within what's, what's capable of your business? Or do you take business risks to be able to go and work with more people or, you know, launch a book I guess is a risk what is your appetite to risk it in business and does that translate across from your appetite for risk in you know your mountaineering and sports lifestyle so for me when I'm looking at risk I really look at it from the perspective of clutter like is this going to add a lot of clutter in my life is it just good you know I don't mind pain if the for short term if there's longer term joy that's involved But if the pain is just going to be very long and I can't kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel or it's something that's very different from what I do. Look, I'll give you an example. I invest in real estate. I own retail shops here in JLT, which I lease out. Why do I like them? Three to five year contracts. Um, they manage everything for the fit out and all. You know, they don't come complaining, oh, this light doesn't work. My AC is not working, blah, blah, blah. Right. Everything is on, on them. So now when an when a agent comes to me and says, oh, there's this amazing opportunity for an office or a home, I say, is it in JLT? Is it retail? If either of those questions are no, then I say, I don't even want to look at it. Because for me, that's risk. I don't know it that well. And I know it's going to add, even if it's a great opportunity, it's going to add a lot of clutter in my life. And I don't want to do that because I have other options in my life that I can take, which will have a lot less clutter. And so that's how I generally assess things. And the other part of risk is what, what is on the line? I'm always looking at what's the worst that can happen. It's so important to know what that is. So even in business, if I take a call, I, I buy something or I make an agreement with someone, what is the absolute worst case that can happen? And what will that mean in terms of loss, whether it's financial, reputation, time, you know, all the different losses that you may have? Am I okay to take that, knowing that this could go wrong, and what can I do to alleviate those? That's how I look at risk. I really like that, and something that you said when we were on DXP um, today together was that you've alluded to it there. When you're climbing a mountain, you want to remove as much clutter from your backpack as possible. Yeah. Otherwise, it makes it really hard to climb a mountain. You keep the essentials, but everything else comes off. This is where I want to segue towards your book and your sort of your your movement of decluttering your life 
and, and sort of finding that mindset, which is the key to mental focus and physical excellence, just your words, not mine. Um, and I'd love to understand a bit about how you started that movement. Yeah, we've heard a bit about where it's come from, but how did you start it? And what's the real um, sort of passion project that you've got here? Well, you know, everything comes with a with a, a fun story. So I'm 2016. It's the spring of 2016. And I'm on a retreat with six other entrepreneurs. And during this retreat, we all agreed to two words. And that was no judgment. Now, I, you know, this was part of a, an organization where someone told me, Sal, if you truly want to experience the benefits that this, this in, this this organization can give you you have to jump into the deep end don't dabble your feet in the shallow end just jump right in so when they said no judgment i literally it's like this huge weight was just lifted off my shoulder i didn't have to impress anyone i didn't have to be someone i'm not i could just be me and so for the next four days i experienced euphoric joy i'm going to give you an example we went to this restaurant where while you dine they have entertainment these different acts that are happening while you eat and it's a very lively restaurant right and they got singing and dancing and music and acrobats and magicians spectacular the whole restaurant is just on fire it's unbelievable and right at the end uh, and, and we're sitting next to the, ta the stage by the way i can literally put my arm on the stage right at the end a group of dancers come on and just as they're getting to the finale uh, one of them looks at me and she says, come on. <laughs> now, the previous me, even though I love to dance, would have you know, looked the other way, gone back in my chair, yeah. uh, maybe picked up my phone and pretended I'm on a phone call or something. <laughs> but I said, no judgment. And so I went up. And I felt liberated. And here's the magic. At the end of the song, she jumped. And her expectation was, I have to catch her. Yeah. Now, fortunately, I did. But what really clicked in my mind was, here's someone who's just met me, doesn't know anything about me, had more trust in me than I had in myself. And so as I'm coming back to Dubai, I'm, I asked the air hostess, I said, can I please get something to write? And I, I wanted to note down some of these experiences because I wanted to share it with my wife. And then all of a sudden, I noticed tears just trickling down. And this was a very strange experience for me because prior to that, my, my code name between my friends was Iceman. You know, to see me cry was exceptionally rare. And here I am. And tears are just, they're just flowing. They're not stopping. I think it must have lasted for over half an hour. And I'm starting to ask myself, like, what's going on? This is not like me at all. And I quickly realized, Freddie, if this is who I was, and I experienced this euphoric joy, then who am I going back to? Because that's not me. This is me. And I, I realized that I've just been wearing a mask for so long. And I'm, not sure, I'm sure it's not just one mask, multiple masks. I've been wearing them for so long, I thought they became my identity. And it was only when I unmasked, because I didn't have to pretend to be anyone that I'm not, and I could just be me, I saw who I really was, the true self. And I loved that person. And so although we're coming back to a world which is filled with judgment, and I understood that maybe I can't live like that 100% of the time, but even if I live 50%, that's still a huge improvement over where I was. And so I started to identify things that were holding me down. You know, I love what you said earlier, you know, as a mountaineer, like you said, you, you're carrying weight. And if you carry weight that doesn't serve any function or purpose whatsoever, even one extra kilo over hours can feel like a lot. And so I started to identify all that excess weight that I was carrying with me everywhere I was going, whether it was mental, physical, 
relationship for the physical environment. And I said, I've got to, I've got to remove this clutter in my life because that's holding me back from being my true self. I mean, it's amazing to hear you speak like that. And do you think that, I think that resonates with a lot of people listening now, because I think so many people will be like, that is actually me. I've, I'm having to hide behind a mask right now because of a number of things, you know, the pressure of everyday life, credibility, validation, everyone wants to be relevant. And you almost can build a persona out to become more ever relevant because that's what you, you, you seek, you crave in this era of social media. You crave likes and people going, you're brilliant. What do you think is something that, you could offer people as, as as advice to say this is the easiest first step to take that clutter or that mask off i love it great question and i just want to say one thing before i answer that question it's okay to wear a mask as long as you know you're wearing it and it's situational right i just want to point i just want to mention that because there are moments in time where you may you may not want to be yourself uh, just because of the role that you have and there's a certain expectation or you know agreement around it i didn't mention what you're alluding to there is protection right so you need to protect yourself a mask can protect you as well as yeah from the real you it could be uh, and you know how i behave in front of my friends and the language that i use may not be the same when i'm going for a parent teacher conference for example sure. <laughs> right so that's what i mean there just could be some and it's a form of protection i guess yeah so one is really identifying clutter, right? That's the first step because we could be carrying things with us and we may be conscious of it, but we may also not know. And so the exercise that I share with people is self-reflection on a daily basis. And you can do this in the evenings. I find it's nice to kind of just think about your day. All you need is a few minutes. Not like, oh, this is going to take you half an hour, right? You need two minutes, three minutes. Get a pen and paper and ask yourself every day, what elevated my energy levels? That's one question. And whatever that is, see if there's a way to do more of that, right? And the second question is, what drained my energy levels today? And note it down. And the reason I'm saying write it down, because you do this day after day after day after day, and over time, you start to see patterns. And you go, whoa, out of this, this entire month, for example, there were over 20 days when something specific drained my energy levels. Guess what? Clutter. There you go. Okay, he just identified it. If it's a one-off, we, we all have one-offs. I'm not even going to talk about those. But if it's repeating itself again and again and again, that's clutter. And another great way to find out, and this is a little bit more brave, um, is you ask someone. You know, you, you ask your spouse. For example, in my case, I might go to the missus and say, how can I be a better husband? I'll go to the, uh, the, the parents and say, how can I be a better son? I'll go to my best friend and say, how can I be a better friend? Go to the kids, how can I be a better father? And so forth. Now, there is a rule around this particular question, because a lot of people, when they hear something, they might go, but, no, however, <laughs> and they start defending themselves. But what they're giving you, see, you're asking people that genuinely care about you. So what they're giving you is a gift. Freddie, what do you say when someone gives you a gift? Thank you. That's all you have to say. Yeah, if you're honest, that's the best thing, right? Yeah, you, you thank them, and then from the one, two, or very long laundry list of things that they gave you, you get to decide which one you want to pick and start making a change in. But if, for example, within your close circle, three or four of them said something similar, you might go, hey, you know what? If they're all saying it, it may be true. Let me reflect on it. And if you agree with it, you're not just basing it on what they said, but if you t generally agree with it, you say, okay, that's now clutter. Now let me get the tools to remove that clutter in my life. I really like it because I'm trying to sort of play devil's advocate in my mind here of different, different ways of thinking about it, right? Because journaling or writing down thoughts is, is, a, is a great thing, absolutely. Mm -hmm. People don't do it enough, but they're 
more than happy to track their business KPIs or what they're eating if they're going to lose weight <laughs> or, you know, they're more than happy to track those kind of things in the same way that, you know, you work with a lot of entrepreneurs where they resent the appraisal process. You ask them, how often do you appraise your staff or do one-to-one? -one? And they say, once a year, once every six months if I have to. That is that feedback. It's the difference in feedback. It's things that you think you're going to hear bad or that don't raise, raise you up, you don't want to hear. But the things that you think are going to help towards your goal, i.e. you're tracking your calories because you want to have a six-pack for summer, you want to track that. You want to, I want to hear that I've done badly there because I can improve. So almost what I'm hearing there, and I completely agree with, is it's that mindset, mindset shift towards understanding all of your data, in, in personal data I mean, to then take that step forward and understand that cluster. And then the next step, I guess is the, the thing I'm going to ask you now, is what is the process and how difficult is it to remove that cluster? Because it sounds easy, but I'm sure it's not just to cut things off, move things away, because the data <laughs> that you've collected says that's not a great thing to be doing. Yeah, and, and I just want to touch upon what you said before I answer that question is, you mentioned feedback. Nobody likes feedback if it's not that great. Nobody. Oh, yeah, Freddie, you know, your, your work over the last six months, well, and, you know, I'll come up with my list of things. How is that going to make you feel? Yeah, not great. Not great. Bad. Right. Yeah. And so what I, what I just shared with you is actually a concept that has been developed by my mentor and dear friend, Dr. Marshall Goldsmith. You know, he's one of the top leadership coaches in the world. And I'm very fortunate to be a part of his inner circle. And he refers to this as feed forward. Feedback is about the past. Can't change it. Can't do anything. But when I ask you, how can I be a better dot, 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 and I fill in whatever it is that I want to ask, could be how could I be a better listener? How could I be a better friend? Whatever that is, it's asking about the future. It's not going into the past. And guess what? I can be responsible for how the future turns out. And, and when you give me tips, it's not what I did in the past. So I'm probably going to be less defensive. And that's why I'm saying it's a gift that you've been given. It's something you can still change. Mm. So now that you've identified the clutter in your life, depending on which area of your life it's in, uh, you know, there, there are many tools and you know, we can go into specifics if there's a specific one you want to go a little more deep in. And I highlight many in the book, but I always tell people, because again, it goes back to the perfect or running all the scenarios through your head, is you can, you can operate in two zones. You can either operate in the zone of fear, you know, but what if, and it could go wrong, and uh, what will they say, and you know, I might lose money, and there's all sorts of things, and that's living in the zone of fear. Or... You can live in the zone of love. I understand that this may be difficult. But once I get over this hump, this is the life I can lead. And so you're looking forward and, and imagining how life can be once you've overcome that clutter in your life. And that usually is like a springboard and, and lunges you forward a little bit. Because most people don't take that first step. And they just sit back in their comfort zone. Oh, I like it here. Even though my life may not be that great, I know exactly how it's turning out for me daily, you know, on a daily basis. But when you overcome that fear, and like I said, one method is to look ahead and how is life going to look like when you overcome? You start learning. You start learning techniques. You, you go to YouTube or something online. You speak to your friends and you become vulnerable and you talk about it. You go to co you know, you get a coach, you, you, you know, read books, you will start to get answers. And then you take that first step. Cause you know, when I'm climbing a mountain, I don't look at the peak and go, Oh my God, that looks so far away. And, and you know, I, afterwards I'll show you an actual picture where I put a little arrow. That's the mountain we're going to get to at the end of six days. And when you look at it, you go, um, no, <laughs> it's too far. But when you just focus on putting one step in front of the other, it's not that big. And then you kind of feel it out. How did that work out for me? And you're just constantly being aware. And then you say, okay, that's, that's, that's not so bad. Then you put the next foot forward. And as you start to do that, 
The next thing you know, one step in front of the other, in front of the other, now you're at your summit. And you look back and you go, oh my goodness, wow. And so you went from comfort to fear, you overcame it through learning, and then you expand, right? You become a better version of yourself. And so over time, your comfort zone just keeps getting bigger and bigger because you realize, hey, it's not that bad. It's actually quite good. I think we're, I, I completely agree. I think we're very guilty. Everyone's probably very guilty of overestimating what we can do in the short term <laughs> and underestimating what we can do in the long term. And something I've heard you say before is that when you found your purpose, i.e. the, the, the break free movement, decluster movement, it causes you anxiety because looking to that furthest point of what you want to achieve and that's a purpose in life actually starts to bubble inside as, as pressure of, I don't think I can do that. So how do you, how do you overcome that? Obviously you've mentioned there your first few steps. Is there something else you, you use to overcome that? So the, the, uh, the fear that I referred to, the anxiety that was actually the search of purpose, mm-hmm. you know, because everyone's telling me you have to know your purpose. You have to know your purpose. And I don't know mine. I'm searching. I'm asking questions. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm listening to all these great speakers and they're saying, these are ways you can find out. And it's just causing more and more grief. And then I happened to ask a couple of people who are close to me, do you know your purpose? And they did. And I thought that was the norm, but I later found out that it's actually not the norm. Most people (laughs) haven't quite figured it out. But that just brought more anxiety. And so... Luckily for me, I came across this amazing book, uh, The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. And in there, he quoted that everyone has, there's a universal life purpose for everyone. He said, it's for your soul to leave your body in a better state than it entered in. I was like, wow, that works for me. That works for me. And so then I just said, you just have to be what you feel not what someone else expects of you, what you feel is a good human being. And that just brought a lot of calm. But eventually, and to answer your question, I did find my, my purpose, which is to spread the message of nonviolence. And it does sometimes feel like pressure because <clears throat> you're like, oh, I want to impact millions of people. And, it was, and I'm going to tell you something, and it's a bit, it was like, that last stage before my book was that point of no return when I pressed enter and after that it's going to get published. Because sometimes I'm thinking so big but then I realize, well, what if you only impacted one person and you changed the course of their life? Is that going to make you happy? And my answer was yes. And so that's how I took that additional burden off my chest. That I don't need to change the world because here's the thing, when you change one, that one can change many, those many can change the world, but it starts with one. So let me just focus on one at a time, and then let that ripple get further and further out. It's the same analogy of taking that one next step, isn't it? Just moving forward. Yeah. I, I love it, and I think I want to touch on here, you've already mentioned it before, but Hearing you talk, I can understand why you're in you're in this industry and the, the coaching side of it because you're not preaching. You're talking about your own experiences and your own learnings, and you're helping on your own journey to find whatever it is that you're looking for. And you're, uh, as you said, one of Marshall Goldsworth's hundred coaches, which is quite an esteemed list. Right? If anyone wants to have a look at the the hundred list, it's quite incredible. What's it like to be a part of that? What what do you learn from them? Do you feel not that you should, but do you feel imposter syndrome? What's it? What's that sort <laughs> of? Uh, you know, what's that atmosphere like? Yeah, when I when I when I got uh, accepted. So the funny thing is, it's it, it's because it's gone so successful. Um, it's become more than a hundred coaches, um, but it is still a few, a small number in, on the grand scheme of things. And it's it's a real privilege to be a part of this community. And when I first got accepted, because it's really by invitation only, is um, I'm like, wow, some of these names, it's like Alan Mulally, you know, he's a, he sits on the board of Google, he saved Ford Motor Company, you know, he's like wow. voted one of the top CEOs in the world. And you're like, um, yeah, Alan Mulally and Sahil Mehta, there's a <laughs> big gap. But 
they you go there and they just make everyone feel so welcome. Like, look, we're all at different stages of our lives. And, you know, he's, by the way, 70 plus. Now, when I get to that age, maybe I will have had an impact like him. And maybe greater, maybe not as great. But the point is I will have had impact. And he, rather than feeling like an imposter, I look at him as an inspiration. And this community, what I love about it, and I get real, really inspired by all the other members, is Marshall started this through a course he attended where he was asked, who are the heroes in your life? And when he noted them down, they said, why are they a hero in your life? And he realized that all of them had given him information, had empowered him without charging, him, without charging anything. So that's exactly what he said. He goes, I need to be like my heroes. So I'm going to set up this community and I'm going to give away all my knowledge. Oh, wow. And the people who are inducted, they have to promise that they'll do the same. So it's really a way to pay back to society. Mm. And so when I'm with these other people, what I love is we all have a similar vision, which is to give back. It's not always about the money. Yes, we'll take from people who can afford it, but for those who can't, how can we impact them? It's incredible, and I guess it leads quite nicely onto self-doubt. I want to touch on because a lot of people that you know see a lot of the entrepreneurial place or workplace, self-doubt is something that creeps in. This is why we look for coaches, why we look for mentors, and go onto YouTube and look for things to learn and listen to podcasts. Self-doubt is something that is within everyone, and we've touched on before the, the search for relevancy and, and credibility and that kind of thing. What causes you self-doubt? Or how do you overcome your own self-doubt if you experience it? No, no, okay. Uh, it's, it's like I talk about in the book. There's, there's always two wolves that are battling in your head. You know, one is uh, not serving you and the other one is, uh, is, is serving you. And they're constantly fighting with each other. And what I find is, and as I mentioned in the book, is ultimately you have to feed the wolf that is serving you. The doubt is not serving you. And it comes up, and it comes up all the time. Now, if I keep fueling that self-doubt, guess what? It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that wolf is getting more powerful and stronger. Now, the other one, no matter how you know, uh, positive or energetic that other wolf may be, it's just not going to be able to compete. And so then I start feeding the other wolf. When I, when I become aware that this is what I'm doing, I'm like, okay, well, how will life look like when I get over this? And how can I overcome this self-doubt? Is there something I need to learn? Is there someone, some expert I need to be with? Uh, do I need to just try something? Because many times the over-analysis, <laughs> you know, we've all, always heard over-analysis leads to paralysis. That's exactly what happens. The self-doubt just prevents you from doing anything. And nothing gets done. And, and for those who said, yeah, I tried and it didn't work, well... I met someone just now, and I have to share this story. This woman called Lucy um, in, the, in the Mara. She's from the Maasai tribe in Kenya. And I sit on the board of this charitable organization called Humans for Education, where we're enabling schools and families where they send their kids to empower them, not just give money, but empower them to, uh, with the goal to ensure that children get an education versus getting married off at a young age. I mean, there's some girls who are getting married off at 10 years old, for example. Now, this lady, Lucy, it took her 15 years to get the permission from the elders in the community to start the school. Wow. She could have started under her husband's name, but she wanted to make it a point. She's a female who are not seen with the same level of respect, unfortunately. But she said, no, I want to do this right way. I want to represent the female population of this tribe. I want to start a school. She started with, I think, five or seven students. Today, her school, thanks to the work that we've done with them and others, um, they have 134 students. And thanks to that, a lot of girls are now getting an education, not getting married off young, and they have a better future at life. But 15 years, she did not give up because she truly believed. Now, can you imagine what would have happened if she had self-doubt and she let that rule and overcome? No school. Girls getting married off young. And that's not just her school. That impacted the entire community and all the surrounding communities. Yeah, that's, that's incredible, isn't it? Right. 
She did it. Amazing. She kept feeding the wolf that served her because she had a vision and she said, I'm going to fight for that vision because I truly believe that it's going to have an impact and it's going to change the society. Amazing. I, I, that part of the book is incredible. And for if anyone who hasn't read this book, it's, it's, it's quite good, isn't it? It's, I, mean, I think it's a really, really good book. You know, I think it's incredible. I think it's really, really worth a read. And there's a lot of books out there now. It's difficult. It's a, it's a crowded marketplace. <laughs> there's a lot of thought that's gone into this. And there's a lot of things like the wolf. You know, I think sometimes people come up with analogies or whatever they, they're talking about in the stories. And it's not very well thought through. But the stuff in this book is... It's, it makes you stop. I said to you today when I've come in here that, you know, I'm reading this in almost chapters, chapter at a time, leave it a week or so, because I'm thinking about it so much that if I read it all, it's almost too much for me. So I'm, I'm reading a bit, taking notes, letting it settle in, reading it again, because so many people read, you know, I've read 100 books this year. How many of you remembered? How many of you implemented? This is one of those books that I think you need to actually read understand and implement because it will have massive ramifications on your life i truly believe that and that's not just because you're here to help <laughs> i would say that to someone else as well i want to touch on because we're very much in the present here environment so we're lucky enough to be recording in your office in jlt in dubai and you have had this designed incredibly you know and when i talk about earlier my definition of perfectionism this is almost perfect right you've gone Thank through you. this with a fine tooth comb haven't you and everything is absolutely perfect for, for what you need and your uh, your team needs. You know, behind the camera right now, we an incredible view across Dubai to the ocean. You've also got a, a walking treadmill with a standing desk, multiple cameras. You know, you've got um, biophilia in here. You've got art. You've also got your wall to to negate any self doubt because of everything you've achieved or a lot of things you've achieved. How much does the environment that you're in dictate your performance? It's. I mean, I didn't realize this until I moved into this office. It has a huge impact. The, the office that I stayed in before this was a temporary office because we were fitting this out and a temporary, thanks to COVID, ended up being a, you know, a long temporary. Um, but when I'm in that space and I said, oh, I don't like this, but I'm not going to fix it because I'm just here for a short period of time. And, you know, some of them wouldn't have really cost that much money, but I just said, oh, it's not worth it. But that temporary environment resulted in a temporary mind for me. I just didn't think longer term. And that coupled with a temporary home that I was living in, temporary meaning I was renting, uh, and you know, living in Dubai previously, I had a three-year visa, which also felt temporary. So a lot of things were temporary. So subconsciously, my mind was just in temporary mode. And then once we moved into this new office, which belongs to me, Dubai now gives a 10-year visa. And the home, even though we're still renting, I said, I'm not going to treat it like a rented home, the one that we just moved into. And I spent good money in, in upgrading and you know, refurbishing almost the entire house. And people said, oh, it's a rented home. Why are you spending so much? No, I don't want it to feel like that. I want it to feel like a home and not a house. Because every time I'm there, I, I'm energized. Because it's, it's an extension of me and the rest of the family. And so I've noticed that people are more calm in this newer home. I've noticed people are happier. And even in the office, I've seen productivity going up. Because it creates an environment that allows you to thrive without distractions. And the same in your office, right? Because mm -hmm. this is an office that you've used what feels like almost minimalism. You know, it's a very Scandinavian style, if I may say. And it suits you in a way that it's calming in this side, because this is where you're doing your coaching and you've got your meeting room next door and then there's a sort of divide and you've got your another business which is all linked but it's a very different environment it's still incredibly designed but it's it allows for more hustle and bustle because it serves a different purpose and that's yeah. something that you've obviously thought of right there's no straight lines in this office it's all been ergonomically designed to suit the purpose that each room desires yeah and i have to give credit to my coach who helped me with this and um, because she could see that i was struggling with my mindset between the different work that I have, you know, I've got multiple companies mm -hmm. and she could see that struggle in me. And through the coaching, I realized that, hey, why don't I have two cabins for myself, each one creating an environment that's suitable for that role? And so that's exactly what I have, you know, in my office, I've got, I've got two cabins for myself. And people are like, really? You have two cabins? I said, yeah. 
And so when I shift from one to the other, my mindset shifts. And it's only you know, to put in perspective, it's like when you come home from work and then you change into uh, you know, your casual clothes over your, perhaps your suit, your mindset shifts. It's like when you wear your shorts and t-shirt to go to the gym, the mindset, mindset shifts. And so that's what I created in the office, it's different clothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly, it's super powerful. And you touched there on, on the gym as well. I know you're a very fit guy, I just mentioned here that you've got the, the walking machine underneath your desk, standing desk. What is it about, what, start with, what is your sort of go-to fitness? And then why is it important to you? Before I used to train a lot harder actually. Um, it was all about oh, how much can I lift, how much can I push, how much can I pull, and it's like constantly getting excited about that number when it becomes five kilos heavier. And at some point, I said, "Why?" Because I was I was also getting more injuries as a result of that. And so I said, "Well, what's the fitness that I need to to live my passion?" I do mountaineering, and so there's certain muscle groups that I need to work and focus on those so that I can enjoy the mountain a lot more. Um, I go-kart, uh, you know, I do races, so I, it's for endurance. And then I do a whole bunch of activities with the kids. And so I just want to be able to enjoy all these things. So I said, what's the level of fitness I need to do where I can continuously get stronger to enjoy the activities which I do? It's not about how you look. Like someone even asked me once, they said, hey, Sal, do you have a six-pack? And I said, no. And they said, really? I mean, you work out and you do fitness. I said, because that's not what I'm aiming for. How is that going to serve me on the mountain? Versus having stronger glutes and legs and shoulders and back to support the backpack and all that. So I'm focusing on the elements that help serve me in what I do. And so I do a combination of workouts which are strength. I do, uh, I focus on yoga because that really, and yoga is not just the asanas, right? It's also the breath work, the meditation. I do all of that because that really helps to open my body up, stretches me, um, balances me. And then I play a few sports as well. Like I'm a big tennis player, so I, you know, I play tennis. And, and then every now and again, someone says, hey, you want to play this, you want to play that? And I just join in for kicks and giggles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Throw your hand to anything. I need to ask you a couple of questions that we've asked all of our guests so far. The first being a book recommendation. I mean, I spoke about it before, and I'll, I'll mention the book again. It's The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. It's, uh, it was a real game changer for me uh, when I was really on my journey within. It answered or asked the right questions that helped me to answer uh, a lot of queries that I had. It's a beautiful book, a, a must read for anyone. Mm, it's a great one. And the second question I've got for you is, if you had a full free day, hmm. how would you spend it? I don't think it's too different from what I'm doing now. Uh, I, I, so I, I start the day the same way, which is uh, the morning is to myself. I think that's a, it's what I really love. And uh, I'm grateful that I wake up before everyone else. So naturally, by the way, no alarm. Uh, and then spend time with the family once I'm done with myself. Uh, fitness, make sure fitness is in there. Uh, enjoy a nice breakfast. I don't like to rush. You know, I like to sit on the table and enjoy a nice breakfast. Um, get some work done. I feel that I'm more fresh in the mornings. And then I would have uh, enjoy lunch. And then in the afternoon, I would actually focus on giving back. That's the one big change that I would make. The afternoon, I would focus on how can I serve society? How can I serve the world in w whichever way I can? And then make sure that I'm back to enjoy time with the kids for dinner and pre-dinners. We can enjoy some time together. Yeah, so that's the one big shift I would make is yeah. really give the entire afternoon to serving others. It's a great answer. It's a, it's, a, it's a really nice answer. It's nice that it's not a shift really from what you're already doing. Yeah. It's something that is very achievable, which is perfect. Like we're always looking to get towards yeah. that, that perfect goal. <laughs> Sahil, how can people find you? How can they buy the book and where can they find you online? Online is very easy. They just search my name. So that's S-A-A-H-I-L. And then the last name is M-E-H-T-A. So Sahil Mehta. And you can just go to www.sahilmehta.com. Uh, can easily be found on all the social media channels as well. Uh, and for people who like the book, there's, there's Amazon. There's, uh, you can get it on Audible. There's a, a, an audio version of the book as well. Did you do it? Did you record it? 
I recorded it, oh, yeah. Nice. yeah. Because, you know, the, the book has a lot of personal stories in there. And I didn't quite think another person could capture the stories with the same level of emotion or understanding. And I was actually pushed to use someone. And I said, no, you know, this is a personal book. And I, I really feel the audience deserves to hear it from me. Fortunately, my English is good, so Very good. <laughs> <laughs> they can understand. <laughs> Perfect. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much, and uh, all the best of all your endeavours. Yeah, thanks, Freddie.